Has any of you ever heard of Ernest Becker's book called The Denial of Death? Ernest Becker is not known as a Christian, and, but he writes this book in a pursuit to squash man's pursuit of immortality or the understanding of immortality. And he says the, the reason why we deny death is not an innocent one. There's a motive behind it, he says. And what he comes to in the conclusion of the book is we don't want to admit that we're out of control. We don't want to admit that we rely on something outside of ourselves that supports us. And to the modern man in 2017, what, what makes life meaningful is choice, the idea of options and keeping control of those options. And the American way is that no person has the right to tell you how to dress. No person has the right to tell you how to believe or how to live or how to work or how, how to listen or to think or what to do with our spare time or where to go. And so we're completely bothered by death. Because in, in death, we cannot negotiate. Death offers us no choices. That's why in our world we like, the world does at least, different types of religions. Choices. That's why reincarnation is growing in belief in our world. That's why they have so many fiction stories and movies of what heaven's like. We want choices. We want control. And the reason that we can't stand death is because death is impossible to stop. It's immutable. You can't appeal to it. You can't switch channels on it. You can't sway it. It won't listen to your reasoning. It's relentless and we can't stand it. We can't take it. Death is a change that we don't want. And the question is, what are we doing with death? What are we doing with, with the idea of this change? Death is the only reality that we know for sure is coming. It's the only thing sure about our future and the human side, the only thing. And my job as a pastor is to prepare you for, for life and to prepare you for death. And in life, you're gonna have many types of death. Many different things will come into your life as death, death of a dream, death of a promise, death of a plan, death of a, a person. We're gonna experience many types of death. And when it's all said and done on earth, we will experience the death of our own life. And what are we doing to prepare for these deaths? You might be living in denial of it, but it's still coming. Are we prepared for it? You know, we prepare for all sorts of things in life, but are we preparing for death? Jesus comes to us this morning in John 14 to prepare his disciples for his death. He's a gentle savior, and he has big things to share with them. If you remember last week in John 13, the second half of the chapter, Jesus informed the disciples of a number of things. We saw that he, he's gonna, he would lead them to understanding that Judas, one of their own, was going to betray him and, and them and leave. And he leaves into the night, and then he hear. Peter, who, who pipes up and says, I, I, I'll do anything, Jesus. I, I, I will lay down my life. And Jesus' response is, actually, you're gonna deny me three times. And then throughout that, Jesus is informing them that he's leaving. He's, he's, he's not staying with them. The teacher will no longer be with them. The man that the disciples left, everything for is leaving them now. 
And he's, he's about to explain why and, and why it's better, why it's better for him to leave, why it's better for him to die. And we don't like those words, but he's going to explain it. It's better for, for them and for, for us that he leaves. It's better for him to go to the cross because through the cross, we can finally have freedom. It's better for the separation because one day we'll be together forever. It's better. So Jesus is gonna answer that question in this passage this morning and why it's better for him to leave. And we're gonna look at John chapter 14. If you haven't turned there, turn there now. We're gonna look at verses one through 14. And there's four things I want you to see as we walk through this passage. First, it is better for Jesus to leave because he's going to prepare a place for us. Second, it's better for Jesus to leave to show us the way to the Father. Third, it's, it's better for Jesus to leave to provide greater intimacy with the Father. And last, it's better for Jesus to leave to, to send us out in ministry. We're gonna cover that and walk through it, but before we begin, let me read the passage this morning. John 14, starting at verse one, all the way through 14. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would know my Father also. From now on, do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe in the account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it teaches us and guides us and corrects us, that it encourages us. And God, I pray that your word would speak, that you would speak to your people this morning. As we, your children, come, some with very heavy hearts and what's transpired this last week in their lives, God, I pray that you would comfort them, that you would encourage them, you would bring peace to them this morning. You remind them again that you love them. That you have their best interest at heart, God. May you come alongside with them. Teach us this morning, God. May your people hear from you. For I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first, it's better for Jesus to leave because he's going to prepare a place for us. 
When we come to verse one, we need to remember that it connects to the prior verses in chapter 13. And Jesus, as I said earlier, just informed the group that, that one is going to leave. He's going to disown the group. He's going to disown Jesus. And right after that, Peter is called out for his upcoming denial. And so you can imagine in this upper room discourse, the, the air is tense at this point. They, they've been through a lot. This is traumatic for them. They feel like everything around them is unraveling. That their world is, is crumbling down right there. They're, they're losing something they didn't want to lose. And Jesus' concern is for them. He knows what's better for them. And what's better for them is for him to leave. And so he says in verse one, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And Jesus is preparing them for what will happen. He's teaching them and leading them into the understanding that life is going to change. He wants to prepare them. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus, Jesus knows that their thoughts of a coming reign and rule of Jesus as king is not going to happen now. He's, he's leaving and they're troubled. But then he gives the antidote to anxiety and hopelessness. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. Don't, don't be consumed with sorrow, hope in me, hope in God. David the psalmist asked the question in Psalm 42:11, well, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? And then he answers, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So Jesus says, in my father's house, he's gonna give this hope. In my father's house, there are many rooms. For we're not so what I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And Jesus is leaving. He's been by their side for three years and now he's leaving them. He's preparing them in the midst of, for the next 36 hours and the traumatic things that will happen. And he, he instructs them. He tells them, don't be troubled. Don't be burdened. He's, he's trying to bring comfort. He knows that they'll suffer. Every one of these men will experience a horrible death minus one who will be exiled. These men will be sawn in half. They'll be impaled on a stake. They'll be crucified upside down. They'll be tied to, to wild animals, and the animals will be sent off in different directions, tearing limb from limb. Jesus knows this. He knows what will happen to these men. And he teaches them. He, he, he knows they'll experience pain. He knows they're going to experience suffering. It's all starting right now. The domino has fallen. Jesus knows what's about to happen. And he wants to encourage them along the way, knowing that he's going to prepare a place for them. He's going to prepare a home. And we deeply desire to, to have a place where we fully belong. A place where we are safe and secure. A place where we're loved. And usually that place is home. We long for home. A home is a place where you fit in. A home is a place where you're totally accepted. A home is a place where you can let your hair down, where you can be yourself. It's a place where, where sights and, and sounds and, and smells just fit. Right, isn't that true? I mean, when you go away for a trip and you come home, you're like, home. What do you think of? What do you think of home? Is it an open door with a light inside, with a, a fire going and, and dinner's ready and it smells so good? Delicious food, fun sounds of excitement, 
good food, good coffee, right? Good coffee. Does that happen in your house? Good company, good chair to sit in, to, to read or think. Home, what do you think of? You know, a whole lot of us like to live off those memories. We, we like to travel back to that place. And we go back to that memory because it gives us a sense of who we are. Yet, if you're honest with yourself and you investigate that memory, you realize that it's nothing like what you remember. And not only that, there are people here this morning that are wounded, you know, living incredibly angry lives because they don't have a, a living memory of a home like that. A place to be accepted, a place where everything fit and, and suited them, a place where they could be themselves. And I recognize there's some of you here that when you think of home, you think of pain, not comfort. You, you, don't, you don't know what it's like to experience home. But you know you need a home. You know you need a place. So Jesus tells his men he's, he's going to leave now. It's better for him. And, and he knows they're going to face incredible suffering. And they're going to have trouble. But he says, I have a solution. I have a home for you. I have a place. I have that place, that home that you've been looking for. Everybody needs a place. And it's better for me to leave and go and prepare a place for you. But shockingly, there are some here this morning that don't realize that they're not home yet. And they're frantically searching for a home all the while thinking they are home. Strange, right? C.S. Lewis was quoted saying, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. In your search for hominess, for peace, for rest, for comfort, you neglect the truth that it cannot be found here on earth. You need a place, you need a home, and that home is not here. Your desire for the Father's home is very strong. You just haven't realized it yet. You can't put your finger on it. This is what you've been after. What does it mean to be home? It means the wandering is over. You have complete satisfaction. And your only home is in Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can, complete, can bring that complete satisfaction and contentment for life. The reason the best marriages and the best careers and the best earthly joys always leave us restless is because God refreshes us along the journey with some pleasant stops along the way, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. The, the good things in your life won't fully satisfy you because they're just way stations, they're just ends along the way until you get home. And everyone needs a place. And Jesus has prepared one for us that's not on earth. And it's a big home. Like, big. Lots of rooms. It's true. Jesus says in verse 2, it's true, otherwise I wouldn't, I wouldn't say this. It's true. And then he says in verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. He's, he's coming back for us. 
He will not forget us. And when we get to our home, our eternal home, it will be wholly satisfying. John, the same author of this gospel, wrote for us in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, 3 and 4. He says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And the best thing about heaven is Jesus. It really is. And someday we'll be home. But we're not home yet. And so we have the hope that the best is yet to come. The second thing Jesus wants to teach is that it's better for Jesus to leave to show us the way to the Father. So Thomas, in his, his hearing what Jesus is saying, re replies in verse five. He says, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, at this point in the, in the evening, their minds are so bothered by all that they've heard. They, they haven't had enough time to let these words sink deep into their souls and draw out the answers that Jesus has been giving them for the last three years. And so we hear a response from Thomas. Thomas is an interesting guy, right? And we last heard from him in this gospel in John 11, when, when they're confronted with, with the thought of going back because Lazarus is sick. And, and what's Thomas' response? Let's just go back. Let's just go die. You know, that's what he assumed was going to happen. He's ready for death. He seems to always anticipate the worst of everything. He's an eternal pessimist. Are any of you that way? Any connection there with Thomas? You know, he's deeply moved by Jesus saying he's leaving, and he, uh, he, he assumes the worst. For him, he wants a map. He wants, he wants the peace to know that things are going to work out. You know, I can hear his question to Jesus. I can hear maybe even more of a dialogue. You're, you're leaving? We're, we're never going to get where you're going. We don't even know how to get there. How are we supposed to get there? Isn't there a better plan for us to stay together? Isn't there a better way so that we don't have to be separated? I mean, even if we die together, at least we're together. But if you leave, how are we going to find you? Jesus takes this moment to again teach and give grace and gentleness. He's preparing them. He's preparing them not just for the crucifixion, but he's preparing them for life after the crucifixion. So we come to verse six, and we know verse six. We quote verse six, and there's so much wrapped up in verse six, and this is a monumental verse. He says, Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Huge. I want to unpack this first. Jesus says first, he's the way. Jesus is the only savior for us. He's the only one. And there's this great gulf between you and home. We just talked about that earlier. Between you and rest, there's this huge gulf. And the answer is not more money. The answer is not a better job or better town or better spouse or better kids or more success or better relationship or better fill in the blank. That's not the answer. This gulf robs you of a home 
and it's because of sin and death. That's what separated us from home. And we live in a day that refuses to speak of this. We want to remove this, this, this even term, this terminology of sin. It's our job as believers to, to not let it be removed. We're sent out to share with everyone we come in contact with that there's, there's a great gulf separating them from now and their home. Jesus says, I, I go and prepare a place for you. And he's not talking about getting his hammer and nail gun to go build a house, okay? He's not Chipper Gaines going to remodel a space. Does anyone know who that is? God bless you. If you don't know who it is, please watch ESPN for me. He's not this. He's not going to, to, to build this from scratch. That's not what he's saying. What Jesus is saying here is that I'm going to, to, to bridge this gulf between you and home. I'm headed to the cross. I'm going to die on a cross. I'm setting up the way for you to reach home because without me, without my sacrifice, you will not find the way. This, is the, the, this way is the connection between God and man. I'm making a way home. But he doesn't stop there. He says, I am the truth. And he doesn't say, I point to the truth. He says, I am the truth. Jesus is, is the way to God because he is the truth of God. He, he embodies the revelation of God. To put it another way, Jesus is God's gracious self-disclosure of himself. He came to preach truth. He, he embodies truth. He has the authority to do this. So let's just take one truth here this morning and walk through it. Righteousness. The only measure of righteousness is Jesus, right? We would agree with that, but do we really believe that? Is that how we view righteousness? If you go out and ask someone on the street, you know, does, does God love you? Does God accept you? Many might say, yes, of course he accepts me because I'm not like that idiot. I've got my act together. But just because you, you think you're better than the other guy doesn't mean you're good. You may say you're a good father, a good husband. I don't steal, I'm faithful, but, but you're wrong. You're, you're not good. That's what the gospel tells us. And furthermore, you're, you're evaluating your goodness by the examples around you. Your, your self-righteousness becomes nothing based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, but rather you're comparing yourself to the herd of morons that you surround your life with. And this is the type of righteousness that Jesus says is filthy. God says it's, it's dirty, it's, it's gross. God's type of righteousness is not based upon other people. It's based upon himself. So you may be stuck comparing yourself with others to fill up your cup of righteousness, but God says it's filthy. It's wicked. You may think, oh, I'm not doing that. I, I know what the Bible says. What's your first reaction when someone calls into question your character or your actions? Is it a run to a defense to put the shields up, deflecting all accusations onto others because in your estimation, they haven't reached it either? 
And I have news for you. They haven't. You're correct. They haven't. But what you've done is, is further confuse yourself on your own unrighteousness. You've, you've sunk yourself further because you're, you're basing your righteousness not on Christ but on others. And isn't this the plight that we have when we go out and preach the gospel to those that don't know? This is the, the hamster wheel of their life. But maybe for most of us, we feel righteous, not because of Jesus, but because we're holding up this offering to God that we're not someone else. That we're, we're, we're better than this person. So we're, we're more righteous than them, so we're good. Jesus says that he is the truth. Jesus is the standard of righteousness. Not some other guy. He is the standard that we compare our lives to. He is truth. Next, Jesus says that he is the life. Jesus is saying that the salvation that he's bringing isn't political or social, it's physical and spiritual. We get life with Jesus. And you may say this morning, I'm saved now and now I'm waiting for heaven. But that's not what we're saved into. If that was the ultimate plan, if that was the, the, the touchdown for Jesus, that we get saved and go to heaven, then we would instantly leave, right? How freaky would that be? Sitting in a room when someone gets saved. Shoop. They're gone. That's not what happens. Some... Some may get saved and, and pass away right away. But that's not the plan of God for, for everyone to get saved and go right to heaven. If God's goal is, is just heaven, just get saved and get to heaven, then you would be there right after you were saved. Jesus isn't after a ticket that just helps us leave earth. You know, he, he left the Holy Spirit. And Lord willing, we're going to look at that next week in the second half of John 14 because Jesus is going to land another thing on his disciples of what's going to happen here. God, God gives believers the spirit to indwell in them so that we would be proclaimers of this good news. And our job, every single one of us, is to go into this world and tell people that there's a way home. That this is not their home and there's a way home. There's a truth to be known. There's a, there's a real life. There's a way. So when Jesus says, I'm the life, he's, he's talking about the space between. And if you're a Christian here this morning, this is your job. This is why you're here. This is why he hasn't taken you home. So moms that are sitting here this morning, I know that maybe you're feeling discouraged at the thought of this because you are surrounded by kids that make messes every three seconds and making meals and changing dirty diapers and hoping that your kids will live day in and day out. You know, sending the proof of life pictures to your husband to make sure, yeah, they're still living. I haven't killed them yet. And you think, you're asking me, this is my job to go out and share the gospel? Come see my house. You think, How? Well, moms, be faithful in the little stuff. 
keep plugging away. Give your kids Jesus. Every day. Give them Jesus. Talk about him. Don't, don't worry about converting them. That's God's job. Be faithful little stuff. God, God will do the heavy lifting. For, for students or, or those working the nine to five, those working 40, 50, 60 hour a week, God is not expecting you to launch a ministry next week with a website and, and devotional books. No. He wants you to be a faithful representative of Jesus on the job. You represent Jesus. Be faithful, be honest, be, be hardworking. And when God opens the door for a gospel conversation, take it. Praise God for it and take it. Preach, preach with grace and love and patience. And retired people that are here thinking, maybe, maybe my time is done. I, I did all that and, and now I'm done. Don't believe the lie. You're not done. God will use you right where you are. Get to know your neighbors. Spend time with people outside. If you, you get a chance to go to the, the grocery store or go to Starbucks just to drink coffee, get to know people. Look for opportunities to, to tell them the way home. Have conversations. Preach the gospel. And remember, you're not in heaven yet. So go hard until he calls you home. Jesus says in our messages is that he is the way. He is the truth and he is the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. It's only Jesus. And if you're here this morning as a, as a non-Christian, you've maybe been around Christians before and you're thinking, boy, it's 2017. You really think that? You know, you've, you've read all the books, you've had the world religions and you think through it and you're thinking, really, you think the only way is Jesus? My answer is yes. He is the only way. There's only one way. I believe the word and I preach the word and I would encourage you, church, to do the same. He is the only way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. Jesus encourages on that. He says, we know the Father. If we know Jesus, we know the Father. So he says it's better for, for him to leave, to show us the way. Third, he says it's better for Jesus to leave to provide a greater intimacy with the Father. In verse eight, Philip now responds. He says, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Philip doesn't understand Put, him, put yourself in his position at this point. The roller coaster of the evening. It's been all over the place. He, you know, he lost a teammate in Judas. He's beginning to question Peter, who's going to deny him. And now Jesus is saying, I'm severing my time with you. There's going to come an end. So he's, his, his mind has not caught up with his heart. And he fully doesn't know Jesus yet. Jesus says to Philip, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? And, and what he's saying here, I believe, is Philip, is, 
possible to be standing around listening to me and know everything I, that I've ever taught, to be extremely busy in Christian activities, to, to feed the hungry and heal the sick, all of which Peter did, and still miss the point. I mean, Philip was the inside, right? He was in the inner circle of the 12. He, he knew Jesus. He was devoted to him. He was busy serving with him, doing all the things that Jesus instructed him to do. And Christ is saying it's possible to be busy in the Christian life, to have a full and robust knowledge of him, to be full of zeal, and not even know him fully. That's a quite remarkable statement, isn't it? You know, there's a difference between knowing and personally knowing. The difference between informational knowing and, and personal knowing. You know, think about the difference. If you sit down with someone new and you begin to ask questions about them, about their work and their family and their background, where they're from, who they are, what do they do, where they live, lots of information. You're just gathering the information of them. But eventually, with more time and more in-depth questions, you cross a line into a personal relationship. If you, if you want to really get to know a person, you get personal you begin to ask questions and talk about issues that affect the way they live. And you ask those questions. You begin to talk about things that, that really matter to them, that affect their life and why they really do what they do. And you move in those questions closer and closer to a personal relationship. What's really important to them, what, what, what causes them to hurt, what really helps, what makes them tick. And if you both do that, you can get to a point where you you're both can say, we have a, a personal friendship. And you've moved from an informational connection to a personal connection. But the fact remains that you can learn a lot about a person by not having a personal connection. You can learn a lot about a person through secondhand information. You know what I mean by that? You, you can learn a lot about me by asking my wife questions, by asking my kids questions. That'd be embarrassing at that point. You can learn some stuff about me, but you won't really know me until you talk to me. Jesus says it's not only possible, this is normal. People who are around him, very busy in Christian activities, who are very knowledgeable about him, have gotten it all secondhand. They know about Jesus, not because they've spent time in a personal relationship with him, but they've learned it from others. Let me put it more clearly. You can know the Bible without knowing God, but you can't know God without knowing the Bible. Did you hear that? I'll say it again. You can know the Bible without knowing God, but you can't know God without knowing the Bible. You may even learn some things here on Sunday morning, but you're learning it secondhand. You want to know God? You spend time with him. You read his word and you pray. That's the only way. And the reason why I, I believe, one of the reasons, so many out, out there, you know, come to trust Jesus for salvation is because they, they believe it's too personal. It's too intimate. The Bible says, until you decide whether what he's saying about himself is right or not, if you agree with it, until you make that personal connection with him, none of these other things will make sense in life. In fact, he's not even talking about it with you. He's not going to deal with it. And that bugs us. That bugs him. 
We say, but I, but I have these intellectual questions. The Bible says, well, you see, if Christianity was primarily a philosophy, you could go with the questions first. But since it's a personal relationship, you have to go to the person first. You have to answer the question, who is Jesus? And for many, Christianity is too personal. You know, Nicodemus in John 3 wanted to have a discussion about religion, and Jesus says, you must be born again. So some maybe say, well, how do I know if I really know Jesus? You know, you've been talking about the importance of knowing him, not just knowing about him. How do I know? And, and the short answer, Jesus says, it's seeing. Knowing is seeing. And when Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us, he uses a specific Greek word that literally means, give us an appearance, give us a vision, show us the Father, show us another miracle. And you would think that would be good. You'd think that would be enough. But we've seen already in the Gospel of John as we walk through this, that, that that's never enough for people. Right, just a couple chapters ago in John 12, where, where Jesus is praying, and God the Father answers with an audible voice. And, and what's the response? It's just thunder. Maybe an angel. It's, it's never enough. They have seen miracle after miracle and healing, and they walk away. And Jesus knows that's not what they need. Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He actually, actually uses a Greek word that is really important. And there, there are two Greek words for see. So I, I just want to say I'm very thankful for Logos Bible software that helps me in my study. Um, and, and in this, there's a Greek word for, for seeing, it's blepo, which, which is the word that means to see something with the retina of the eye. And then there's the word horeo, which means to understand. That is the word that Jesus uses. We tend to use both. We, you know, we say we see something, we actually picture it or whatever, but we also say, I, I see it, right? I see it, I, I get it. It has sunk deep into me. What does it mean to know God? It means that information, the, the cross, for example, stops being information and it sinks deep down into our soul and has an impact. It affects us. It gets into our hearts and changes us. We have a reaction to it. Philip needed this, and so do we. So it's better for Jesus to leave. It's better for him to leave to provide a greater intimacy and understanding of the Father. We can know him personally. And last, it's better for Jesus to leave, to send us out into ministry. And Jesus ends our passage this morning with a challenge. He says in verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. These men had seen and been a part of so much magnificent ministry, but there was still yet more to do. There was greater work to be done and greater because it would be spreading. Most of Jesus' ministry up to this point was confined to Palestine, but these men would spread the gospel. You understand the gospel needs to be spread, right? Christians are the ones that spread it. I'm not a large church guy, meaning I'm not all about getting it bigger and bigger and better. Uh, 
I hope, well, I'll just leave in God's hands what he'll do. But the, the reason why I'm, I'm not like I want a thousand, two thousand in that regard is because I, a quote years ago really affected me. It changed my view of the church, changed my view of Christianity. And it's by Francis Chan. And I want to read it. You guys ready for this one? I want to write it down. He said, Christians are like manure. Starts off really good, doesn't it? Spread them out and it will help everything grow better. But keep them in one big pile and they will stink horribly. I don't want our church to be a big pile of manure. How's that for a takeaway from the message, huh? Can't wait to hear about your conversations over lunch. Our job as Christians is to spread it out. That's what he's saying in verse 12. It's greater not because they're, they're greater than Jesus, but because the impact is no longer here, it's there. We go out. We don't just keep it to ourselves. We don't hoard the gospel. It's mine. We spread the gospel. We go out. And Jesus says, he says in verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the, the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And praying in Jesus' name does not involve a magical incantations, but it expresses an alignment of one's desire and purposes with God. And we should be, we should be praying for what would bring the most glory to God as Jesus does. And I know that the health and wealth movement of our, of our day has tried to ruin this and has taken this verse captive and, and has twisted it. But it doesn't mean pray for a jet and God will give it to you. You know, look at the context of what's happening here. Jesus' disciples had left everything, all that they had to follow him. They had no resources and now their master, the one they left everything to serve, is leaving them. And they would be alone in the world. And let me tell you, we know when you get through this, you get through John into Acts, it's turning into a very hostile world for these disciples. He knows this. And he says to them, don't worry about your needs. God will take care of you. I will take care of you. They will be supplied for by the Lord. Even though he's going to be absent, they would have all the access to his supplies. So this is not a blank check for every whim of the flesh. That's not what Jesus is saying. There's a qualifying statement that he repeats twice in these verses. He doesn't teach them to pray for anything and I'll give whatever he asks. But instead he says, I'll do whatever you ask in my name. In my name. So it doesn't mean we can pray for whatever we want, just tack on the words in Jesus' names. And then we're good. Neither is there a special formula or, or abracadabra that will magically guarantee the granting of every one of our wishes. We pray in Jesus' name, not because we have formed a, a habit, but we're, we're praying in concert with his character for those things that will bring, bring most glory to him. That's why we pray. That is what he's saying here. We pray that his will be done, not ours. We, we pray that his glory will be magnified, not ours. We pray out of submission to him. And so to my non-Christian friends that are here this morning, do you want to know what to pray for? 
the prayer that will bring most glory to God is a prayer of confession. Admitting the truth about yourself. That you need Christ. And repenting and turning away from your sin and trusting in Christ. That is the prayer that brings most honor and glory to Jesus. <clears throat> it was better for Jesus to leave. He was leaving to prepare a place. It was better for Jesus to leave because through leaving, he was providing for us a, a greater intimacy with the Father. And we receive the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's better for Jesus to leave because he prepares and sends us out to ministry. It's better for Jesus to, to leave because now he has showed us the way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I must be the life. That means I, I, I have to be the reason you live. He says, I'm not the, the help for your career. I'm not the reason for your career. I am it. I'm not the help for your life. I'm the, I'm the reason for your life. I have to be the very reason you get up in the morning. I have to be the first thing in your life. And then he says, I, I have to be the truth. That means that what I say, my teaching, has to be, take precedence over your, your feelings. It has to take precedence over what you think is practical, over public opinion, over the opinion of your friends, over the opinion of the, the experts. He says, I have to be the truth. And he says, last, I am the way. What about the, the good Buddhist? What about the good person who lives off in a far jungle in an organized religion of their own making? How could Jesus say, I'm the, I'm the only way to the Father? But that's the way it is with people. Don't you see, you, you cannot find your way into a person any way you choose. You have to be let in from the inside. And Jesus says that he is the way. That he is the truth and he is the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. I pray that we will take this gospel and they would spread it this week. Those we come in contact with, those that we work with and live with. May this gospel be on our lips this week. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word that teaches us and guides us and leads us. I thank you for the conviction that you bring through your word. And we recognize and we're reminded again this morning that it was better. It's better for you to leave, for you to go and to die on the cross. And through that, we have payment for our sins. We are made new. Father, I do pray for those that are here this morning that do not know you. And maybe like Philip, they have been around you for a long time, but have never, they really don't know you. They don't spend time with you. I pray that these words, this, this scripture would bring conviction upon their heart and, and your compassion for them, your, your patience 
to them, that they would see that and understand it, that they would turn from their ways and follow after you. May they trust in you and live for you. And for us as believers, God, I pray that we'll be faithful this week in the proclamation of the gospel to those that you bring into our midst. Help us, God. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.